Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into retirement income. And today we're talking with Wade Fowl about safety first retirement planning. Our loyal listeners probably know Wade by his other name, the retirement researcher. Uh, Wade is the brains behind retirementresearcher.com. And among other things, uh, that's something that's probably the most cited resource on our podcast, especially this notion that your retirement risk goes up as you approach retirement. And the way I did the math on Wade's math is it triples the day you retire. So you're going to enjoy this conversation where we're talking all things retirement today. This is Retirement Revealed, where Jeremy Kyle and his guests guide you towards making smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions. Wade, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you got it. And uh, I mentioned the retirementresearcher.com, but there's other things that you do as well. Let's just start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so my day job, I'm a professor of retirement income at the American College, where I run the Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation Program. I've written four books at this point, the newest and longest and most detailed of which is the Retirement Planning Guidebook, but also uh, the book Safety First Retirement Planning. I summarize that book in the Retirement Planning Guidebook as well, because there's, and also focusing on different retirement strategies. I try to remain agnostic and to try to explain and provide you know, critiques and the positives and the, the minuses of <laughs> different retirement strategies, whether it's investments only, whether it's using annuities, everything out there. Yeah, I appreciate, uh, number one, the data. I was a physics major in college, so anything data-related, I'm, I'm happy for. And so you're <laughs> bringing the data to retirement, uh, but also, like you said, agnostic about approaches. It seems like the way you get, uh, I don't know, press, attention, clients perhaps to say, this is the only way to do things, and you clearly uh, know that's not the, the case. Actually, maybe let's start there. I wasn't um, planning on it, but let's just uh, go to that. Tell us about the Retirement Planning Guidebook and I think in that is where you talk about the four kind of main ways you can go about uh, planning your retirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that was, so for a long time, we've known there's different retirement strategies, but that's, I've coalesced that with Alex Margie about these four retirement styles. And the first we call total returns. In the past, it's been called systematic withdrawals. Usually it's probably the most common name, but it's the idea of build a diversified investment portfolio and just spend from it as you go through retirement. There's also time segmentation, which can also be called bucketing. And that's really just you invest differently based on the time horizon. So it's more bonds for short-term expenses, stocks for long-term expenses. There's income protection, which has also been called flooring or essentials versus discretionary. And that's first build a floor of protected lifetime income to cover your basics. And then once you have done that, you can invest on top of that for more discretionary types of goals. And then the fourth one, which is we brought this in, we split <laughs> income protection also has its cousin risk wrap. And risk wrap is for individuals who are fundamentally just more comfortable with the market, but they still want some sort of protected income floor as well. And that's where different types of annuity innovations over the years may speak to that in terms of being able to invest for upside while still having downside protections in place. And I don't think you were describing those four main ways just for the fun of it. I think a fundamental premise of your book is that figure out which way appeals to you more, uh, kind of maybe what you're naturally drawn to. And that's probably the way you ought to go. Uh, it's kind of like, let's match up the way that you act or will act in retirement 
with the way that your investments and income are set up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because ultimately these different approaches are all viable. And whenever you hear an advocate of one approach, if they're an extreme advocate, they will argue that this is better than everything else. But at the end of the day, <laughs> it's really hard to make that claim. Each approach has benefits and has minuses. And so finding the approach that you're most comfortable with, ultimately, you need to be able to stick with your plan in retirement. And if you use an approach that you're not comfortable with and that you bail on at the worst possible time, then that was not a best practice for you. You needed, you would have been better off with a different strategy and just finding the strategy that you're most comfortable with. It is viable and it will work better for you in the long run. Yeah. And um, part of it, you didn't mention safety first, but I think you can maybe uh, describe it in a couple of those different ways. I've got a feeling you wrote safety first retirement planning because the kind of prevalent mainstream way to talk about retirement was that total return, the investment-based systematic mm -hmm. withdrawals and you just wanted to introduce well that doesn't work for everybody so that's maybe like the right. first go around of how this this came together right the default in the consumer media is always what what we call total return but just investments only could be another name for the default and you know for a long time i talked about the two schools of thought safety first and probability based and that lives on in this idea of retirement styles with it's one of the two primary factors that explains someone's uh comfort so if you're probability based you're really comfortable relying on the stock market to fund your retirement in the precise years you need it to be up to sustain a higher level of spending than bonds. And if you're safety first, you may still believe in stocks and, and the idea that stocks will go up over time, but you don't want to be fully dependent on that. You'd rather have some sort of contractual protection to help support your basic retirement expenses. So you're not completely exposed to the sequence of market returns in your retirement to define the success of your retirement. Yeah, gotcha. So there's kind of four approaches uh, are mapped out and we'll probably, we'll try to find that graphic. I remember that graphic from your book of you've got kind uh -huh. of your, your market exposure desire up and down and kind of your, your income safety exposure up and down or left to right, whichever way you get, one of them has got to be left to right. So <laughs> we'll, we'll put right. that out there. Uh, we'll talk about that safety first uh, retirement planning. What is a safety first retirement plan? Well, safety first retirement plan. And this is where I, I wrote the book, Safety First Retirement Planning, before we did the uh, the research on retirement styles. And it turns out that this safety first factor, it I, I like originally I thought risk graph was a safety first strategy and time segmentation was a probability based strategy. But as it turns out, a lot of these other characteristics in terms of just what other types of preferences people have and so forth. Safety first, it really becomes more about a contractual protection. So income protection or time segmentation, it's just with time segmentation, you use bonds or other kinds of deferred fixed annuities to cover shorter term expenses. And then you hold the asset to maturity, you know what you're gonna get, the face value at maturity, any coupon payments, and you have that protection for that spending power. And that's really at the end of the day, more generally though, in the context of when I wrote the book, Safety First Retirement Planning, I really meant it more as that lifetime flooring approach of before we get into investing in the markets and, and being exposed to market volatility, let's make sure we have our basics covered through social security, if we have a traditional company pension, and then if there's still a gap between what I'd like to be able to comfortably fund and spend in my retirement, and the reliable income assets I have already, the social security, other pensions and things, then you might look to fill that gap with some sort of an annuity that uses risk pooling 
to help support a protected lifetime income in a manner that's competitive with anything the stock market can do. Yeah, you mentioned Social Security, and you also mentioned contractual guarantees. And I find that often that people are concerned and wanting to have uh, their money protected some way. And my general thought is, well, uh, look at a pension, look at Social Security first, like getting more out of those two things Mm -hmm. are commission-free, fee-free. That's the first place to look. So tell me, why is delaying Social Security the best annuity you can buy? (laughs) Yeah, great point. And it is. It's And the idea is, and many people want to claim Social Security earlier, but if you do that and buy a commercial annuity, that would be less efficient than wait until 70, at least for the high earner in the couple. And then uh, you'll get more lifetime income that way. And, And the reason is, the social security delay credits were designed in 1983 and interest rates were still, now the interest rates are recovering, but they were still a lot higher in 1983. The real interest rate at that time was about 2.9% versus today, the 30 year tips yield is somewhere in the ballpark of 1.5, 1.6%. Plus it was based on longevity in 1983. And today people are living a lot longer than they were in 1983. So you have a much better than 50% chance of living past the types of break-even ages that were used to define what's the fair age you'd have to live to to benefit from delaying Social Security. Yeah, people often say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all relative. It'll all break even. And the answer is yes. If people were living as long and interest rates were as high as they were in 1983, and both of those are the opposite. So uh, at this exact point in time, here we are, 2023, uh, the guarantees, the growth, the income protection, whatever you want to call it from Social Security, it's too good to be true. So they might as well take care of it <laughs> because it is true, right? Right. And, and the idea is if if I treat, okay, I'm going to delay from 62 to 70. So if I treat those age 62 benefits that I miss out on for the next eight years as the premium to fund an annuity that will then pay me a 77% higher inflation-adjusted protected lifetime income for the rest of my life. The implied payout rates on that are higher than anything that any commercial annuity is able to provide, which is the way I frame it and explain it in the Retirement Planning Guidebook. Yeah, exactly. And that just, that just speaks my language. I agree with that uh, 100% right there. Now, um, I think another reason too why you wrote Safety First Retirement Plan, I'm, I'm putting a lot of assumptions on you, Wade, but I think another reason why I think you wrote it is just that the way, like you said, the financial press talks about retirement and investing is different than clients like the investors actually approach. It seems to me that there's, uh, especially when you hit retirement, the concept of secure, stable, sustainable income, people really like that. And they view their paycheck that way. And that's all of a sudden gone. And so they want to have some level of replacement, whether it's pension or social security or some sort of a, annuity guarantee. T- tell me how I'm uh, thinking about this. How, how am I doing oh, No, you, you have it right that when you start looking at the consumer media discussions of retirement, the, the fault is always kind of the 4% rule logic, which was use a portfolio of 50 to 75% stocks throughout your retirement. And that's a really aggressive asset allocation for retirees. And you should be fine because historically based on US market data, that would have worked in all the different 30-year periods from our history. And that's not going to... Some people will be comfortable with that type of an assumption. That's what with the total return style, we think about a third of retirement, kind of people in the retirement age range 
uh, about a third resonate best with that sort of total returns approach. But that means two thirds of people are looking for something different. And that's where the consumer media may pay a little bit of lip service to a time segmentation or bucketing strategy or to an annuity strategy. But it's really, they just sort of, the, the problem is the pre-retirement world accumulation, that is more of a total returns world. And it's still just trying to explain to people how once you retire, risk changes and not everybody's going to be comfortable with using the same accumulation-based growth approaches that they use pre-retirement in post-retirement as well. Yeah, it's not like, um, it's not, you're right, risk changes. I saw, I was at the Investments and Wealth Institute uh, a year or so ago and Moshe Molesky talked. He said, the math is literally different. Like the, the math you use to describe what you need to do to grow your money is completely different math than what you need to use to take uh, the money out. So I'm, I'm assuming you agree with that. Absolutely. Yes. It's very different when you're able to contribute new savings every year versus when you're taking distributions each year. Yeah, you got it. And I'm, I'm going to ask you for some advice here because I'm, I'm hoping you can help me with some phenomenon. You've done a lot of research on people's spending styles, uh, maybe even their, um, not just their preferences, but how they actually go about things. Uh, when I'm talking to investors, I can generally get people to accept that the day they retire is not the day they have to take Social Security. I think a lot of people feel that uh, before we talk, and then they they kind of accept that afterwards. Like, yeah, you're right on. I can. I don't have to take Social Security uh, right away. But then all of a sudden, <laughs> they're thinking, well, did Jeremy just tell me I can't retire until I take Social Security? Or did Jeremy just tell me uh, live like a pauper uh, and have no income at all until later on? He takes Social Security. And so I, I talked to them about that, say, no, you've got, and we're gonna make this uh, easy. Let's just pretend you only have a 401k, you only have Social Security. So you got the choice to kind of live on Social Security now and your 401k later, or the opposite, live on your 401k now and your Social Security later on. And really just kind of as a, a thought concept, people usually get that. I said, let's just look at both scenarios and would you want to go with whichever scenario gives you the highest amount of stable income over your lifetime? And they say yes. Well, generally speaking, the answer turns into delay the higher Social Security. And they agree. But then all of a sudden, they don't want to take the money out of the 401k. And they're spending less than they really could. Uh, because there's just this huge psychological benefit to having money come in kind of on a periodic basis, theoretically from the outside, even though it really <laughs> isn't. So I guess two questions, if you can help me out, maybe think through this here is um, uh, number one, maybe uh, how do we get people to spend from their 401k when they're delaying on their social security? And maybe the other question is when we're doing this math and saying it's a good idea to wait on social security, like how do we account for the value, like the psychological value, because it's there of, yes, I'm taking money today from a seemingly outside source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do develop some examples around that in the book as well. And the, the way to start thinking about it is have a social security delay bridge. And, and it's right. If you're going to delay social security, it's okay to spend down the other investment assets more rapidly until social security begins. Because once social security begins, you're going to have so much more income from that. The, the reduced pressure then on your investment subsequently will leave you better off over the long term. Usually somewhere around age 80, you're going to be able to start be providing larger legacies at the end of life 
after having delayed social security and spent your other assets first. But you don't necessarily want to just have a market portfolio that you need that bigger distribution from for the first eight years. So you can carve out your missing social security benefit, build a simple kind of bond ladder for those eight years of income. And when you do that, then with your remaining investments, you're actually going to be able to use a lower distribution rate for your entire lifetime. And that's the mechanism that allows you over the long term to support a larger legacy value for those assets. Yeah, it's been interesting too, because in general, as people kind of approach retirement, the general thought I think is I've got this pot of money and I don't want to hurt that pot of money. And I I love to take the income out of that pot of money and, and maybe just have it stay the same. Or I, I'd like to have it maybe just grow a little bit, you know, over time with that, whatever they've saved up. And it's uh, interesting because the math really shows, well, actually, if you you draw down that pot of money and then let it increase later on, like this, this kind of V gives you much better success than kind of just like hold on to whatever, whatever you have. Mm-hmm. And if you add in the tax implications, it can be more helpful t- from a tax-wise perspective by spending some of those other assets first, then starting social security, because unless you're too wealthy, that might actually help you not have to pay taxes on as much of your social security benefits later on as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of wealth and social security, you just came out with a paper talking about wealth and social security. And a lot of people claim social security early because they think that they're better off uh, letting their money stay invested, right? I'm going to live off my social security because I'll make it up uh, from my investment returns. Tell us about what you found there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the analysis of that in the past has always just been, well, if you (laughs) take Social Security early, that allows you to leave more money in your investment account. And assuming you get a 10% annual return on your investment account, you'll be better off. And and yes, that would certainly be true if you did get a 10% annual return on your investment account. But what we did in this research, this was with Steve Parrish published just this month, January 2023. Uh, we looked at that with the historical data, the Robert Schiller's data going back to 1871, and we simulated based on historical market returns and different asset allocations, would you have been better off in the long term by taking Social Security at 62, uh, this hypothetical, (laughs) using today's laws and so forth, or waiting until 70? And and the odds are really in favor of having stronger long-term financial outcomes by delaying Social Security, because the implied return you get from delaying Social Security is usually able to beat the actual kind of historical sequence of returns, risk included, everything included types of returns that you're getting from an investment account. And we didn't go to 100% stocks, because if you're talking about a 10% compounded return, it's assuming 100% stocks. Not many retirees are doing that. But we looked at asset allocations between 25% stocks up to 75% stocks. Now, as you get to higher stock allocations, sometimes you could be a little bit better off claiming early, but still more than like 60 to 70% of the time, delaying social security gave you a better lifetime financial outcome. Yeah. And did you include the tax piece of that too? In there? Mm-hmm. And, and taxes okay. were fully incorporated yes. into that analysis. Okay. Yeah. Because that's oftentimes when people actually do put together the spreadsheet. That's always fun because okay, here's the spreadsheet as if this is the only one way it could work. So people are often putting in the spreadsheet, uh, trying to say, when's my break even? And they're assuming they'll make a certain amount on their investments, which doesn't always happen. Uh, but they, I don't think I've ever seen a spreadsheet where someone's done their own social security break even analysis and actually included the taxes. Because if you make more money on your investments, you pay higher t- taxes. 
if you make more money on your social security, uh, relatively speaking, uh, you don't pay more taxes because at least 15% of your social security will be tax-free. So you're growing uh, an income that has a portion of it tax-free. And actually, by the time you take social security, if you have more social security relative to your other income, uh, your taxes are probably a better situation than the opposite where you have a higher income and lower uh, social security. So that's that's oftentimes where I see people and they say, well, it's going to take me till 80 to break even. And it turns out it's actually earlier for a lot of people because they ignored this huge uh, piece of it. So you've um, obviously incorporated that. Yeah. And why would I expect anything different from you, Wade? Well, programming how social security is taxed is one of the most complicated things I've done. I don't know how they could design a more complicated system. But but indeed, it can be the case that by just spending some other assets first and possibly even doing Roth conversions before Social Security begins, and now as the RMD age is getting kicked up further, this is creating even more potential for some of this too. But uh, then you may not have to, like I said, unless you're too wealthy, you may be able to strategically get to a point where if you had claimed Social Security early, you're going to be paying taxes on 85% of your Social Security benefits for your whole life. If mm-hmm. you delay social security and spend some of those other assets first, I mean, I'm just making up numbers here, but maybe you can get that social security to the point where maybe you're only paying taxes on 30 to 40% of your benefits. And that can have a big tax impact. And that's one of the ways that delaying social security can give those better financial outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we're definitely looking at uh, all the time. I think we're looking at it because we're relying on the research that's out there that that just shows the 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 probability of success. And that's really what you're doing with retirement is just trying to give you the best probability of success. Uh, A lot of times you see like a Monte Carlo simulation and it says, well, out of a thousand times, 90% of the time this worked out. Well, you don't have a thousand retirements. You have one retirement. And so the whole point is to (laughs) kind of give you the best probability of success. And I just want to ask you about probabilities here because that's interesting. I see it a lot with clients, especially when it comes to social security or pension, just anything kind of related to even longevity. Uh, they're like, they just say, you know, what are the odds and kind of throw their hands up in the air. And I say, well, let's find the odds because you can actually <laughs> find the odds. You know, what are the odds? I'll make it to 80 for this decision to work out. Well, let's go find those odds. Uh, and it's especially interesting too, uh, when it comes to social security, cause it's not the odds of just yourself. It's the, uh, the odds of a couple, which are different <laughs> dynamics. Like the, the first to die odds is different than the surviving spouse. Like when's the second person die odds? Those are different odds compared to people individually. And a lot of times uh, people look at it individually and they're not only are they using the wrong odds, uh, they aren't even looking at it <laughs> at all. And so how, how can we help people? How can somebody go through and just say, let me give myself a better probability of success? How do they kind of take on the odds and the bets that have the higher uh, chances of working out? Mm-hmm. And that's another point about delaying Social Security, too, is we talked earlier about those 1983 reforms. Uh, it, it was supposed to be, it didn't matter which age you claim Social Security, that you'd, if you live to your life expectancy, you'd break even. But that was based on single individuals. And that's where with the high earner and the couple, that benefit will last for the joint lifetime of those two individuals because it would become a survivor benefit in the case that the, the high earner passed away first. So there it's very likely that with two people, the, they're gonna someone's gonna live longer because you've got two possibilities for a long life there. Uh, and a simple tool I like to use to look at that sort of thing of getting an estimate around life expectancy, it's the longevityillustrator.org. And it's through the Society of Actuaries. And it's a real simple, you can do for one or two people. 
age, gender, smoking status, and then just is your health, I think, excellent, average, or poor. There's three options there. Enter that information, and they'll give you the distribution of possibilities. And the and as a percentile, the, the 50th percentile would be the life expectancy, where that's the age that half the time you won't make it that long, half the time you'll make it past that age. But I, I generally say, like, if you're more concerned about outliving your money, maybe look at the 10th percentile number. If you're less concerned about outliving your money, maybe look at the 25th percentile number. Don't look at the the 50th percentile number. That's just a, an average outcome that you got to really have something a bit more conservative than half the time I'm going to outlive what I, what I what I plan for. Right. Yeah. I forget um, where I read it. Uh, might have been you, might have been Moshi, might have been one of the many people I read all the time. Uh, but they said people might die on average, but they don't die on time. If you actually look at kind of <laughs> how many people die the year of their life expectancy, it's less than 4%. Oh, and yeah. So, you, know, you just can't count on dying on time, I guess. Uh, well, one thing I see uh, that you put out there is the retirement income dashboard. Uh, what is that dashboard? Uh, how does it help people make retirement choices? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is something I haven't updated for a while now. But it, the idea behind it originally was just showing given today's market environment and interest rates and and current interest rates have a huge impact on how much you can sustainably spend in retirement. So I was just showing, and I I think I haven't updated it now since 2021, but based on what were annuity payout rates at that time, how much could you spend if you build a bond ladder based on the the bond yield curve at the date of doing the analysis and then running some simulations on different spending strategies, whether it's inflation-adjusted spending, whether it's fixed spending, whether it's a variable spending strategy that makes adjustments based on market performance, what do what would the sustainable withdrawal rate be based on different assumptions about how much uh, probability of success do I want to have, how long do I want the plan to work, what sort of asset allocation will I use? Yeah, what I I remember tracking that for a while, and I think uh, kind of Morningstar is almost taking up the mantle in a way. Although they're just looking at one approach, you looked at several different uh, approaches on there, and I think what it really highlighted with this retirement income dashboard is so many people have this thought that it's the four percent rule, and whatever you do, the first day of retirement stays exactly the same the rest of retirement, and you are really highlighting. Uh, you didn't mention retirement income style awareness in the uh, dashboard, but you're highlighting there's different ways to approach retirement. And you <laughs> gave like a uh, uh, a projected withdrawal rate based on the different uh, approaches on there. Uh-huh. Uh, you're also highlighting, you know, things change. And just to highlight uh, maybe um, Morningstar's research, I remember at the end of 2021, they came out and said that the safe withdrawal rate, which is probably a better way to say the 4% rule, so the four per, the safe withdrawal rate uh, was only three point three percent, and some people said that's too high. Some people said that's nuts. It's four percent of work forever. Um, and then a year later, at the end of twenty twenty two, after the market drop, they said, "Well, the safe withdrawal rate is three point eight percent." And so a lot of people are thinking, "You're crazy! How can it possibly be that the the market's down and you can take out uh, more money?" Uh, so how does that happen? <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's so. <laughs> sometimes on the, the Bogleheads forum, they get into really heated debates yes. about this. And yes, there are some people who ve- feel that the the four percent rule is kind of a universal constant. And to me, it, no, it's obvious that on a daily basis, the safe withdrawal rate will fluctuate 
because it's highly dependent on interest rates. And so I, I get similar numbers to like those Morningstar where, yeah, when they came out with 3.3%, I was somewhere in the same ballpark. I do think the safe withdrawal rate today, now that the, the tip yield curve was entirely negative for a while, that makes it really rough as a starting point for retirement. Now, the tips yield curve is in the, the ballpark of 1.5 to 1.7%. You need a 1.33% real rate of return to get the 4% rule to work based on its underlying assumptions. So mm-hmm. yeah, you can get now as you introduce market volatility and you want a high probability of success uh, with a 30 year bond ladder, tips ladder, I could make the 4% rule work, but with a diversified portfolio, I'd probably go to somewhere around 3.8% as, as well right now, based on the higher interest rate environment. But indeed, I, I definitely fall in the camp that the safe withdrawal rate can fluctuate over time because it's not just what worked historically. That's the be all end all of it. It's based on where we are in terms of interest rates and so forth. What's a reasonable, sustainable withdrawal rate looking forward from this point in time. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank, thanks for talking through that. Uh, and that retirement income dashboard, uh, I, I think you're a busy guy. You do a lot of things, and I appreciate you putting in there. That's that's still valid. Uh, the market went up, the market went down. Uh, the numbers I, I think that are in there from uh, April 2021, uh, and just the concept is very valid. So we're gonna put a link to that as well too. And those numbers are too low because interest rates were incredibly low at that time. Yeah, they- right. Well, that's what um, uh, Bill Bang and who is the the creator of the four percent rule or discoverer of the four percent um, theory, really not a rule. Um, the market dropped in early 2022. And a lot of people were saying, oh my goodness, the market dropped. What do you think? And he said, well, the market up and down doesn't matter too much. It's the inflation being high <laughs> that really matters. That's kind of the the killer of the uh, the 4% rule or whatever the safe withdrawal rule might be. Good. Yeah, the sequence well, of inflation risk. <laughs> that's exactly it. See, uh, that that's perfect. Good. Well, we've got a few rapid fire questions uh, towards the end here. Uh, how, you ready to go? Okay. Uh huh. Let's do it. All right. First one is what is the four percent rule? Well, it all starts back in 1994. But no, no. Bill Bengen was just responding to you. What people wanted to do was plug a number into a spreadsheet. Every year, your portfolio grows by this. What's the safe withdrawal rate? And he said, no. Market volatility impacts that. So, based on all the different 30-year periods in U.S. history, the four percent rule tells you that if you start with a portfolio of 50 to 75 percent stocks you could take out 4% in year one of retirement, increase that amount of spending for inflation every year, and never have run out of money for at least 30 years in any different 30-year period in US history. And that's all it is. It's a historical observation based on a very large number of assumptions, no taxes, no fees. You can uh, not panic. You stick to this aggressive asset allocation throughout 30 years is a long enough retirement so on and so forth. And, and some people then translate that into a, a safe withdrawal rate for retirees. Yeah. And uh, you, you've got to know the assumptions of anything uh, that are going in. I think a lot of people hear 4% and they don't dive into what those assumptions might be on there, good or bad. Yep. Good. What is the difference between modern portfolio theory and modern retirement theory? Mm-hmm. Modern portfolio theory is an accumulation tool. It's meant to in an assets only world of your all you're trying to do is grow assets, looking at what is the efficient frontier in terms of choosing an asset allocation for an investment portfolio that can allow for the risk adjusted return, the highest return for a given level of short term market volatility. Uh, modern portfolio theory, that's a Jason Branning and Emory Grubbs that 
how do they define really? Yeah, they want you, you mentioned before the secure, sustainable, and um, what was the other the, the three S's? That's not right. just it, it, what it really is doing is it's bringing the liability into the mix. That it's not just growing assets; it's matching assets to liabilities, funding liabilities, and so it's choosing an approach for asset allocation, but not just investments. It's the entire household asset base matching that to the liability that's trying to be funded in the most efficient way, matching up the risk characteristics so that for essential spending needs, you're not necessarily exposing those funds to the stock market. So it's going well beyond modern portfolio theory. Yeah, I read uh, about that, that, I guess, second theory uh, from your site, I mentioned on your site. And I think modern portfolio theory is only looking at putting money into an account and growing it. And modern retirement theory is recognizing uh, you might have already put the money into the account and now you want to take the money out. <laughs> so you just have to have the two different approaches. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Fund a liability. <laughs> there you go. Fund a liability. That's that's perfect. Now, what is wrong with using risk tolerance questionnaires for retirement planning? Oh, you know, great question. So risk tolerance questionnaires were designed for modern portfolio theory. It's how much the idea of modern portfolio theory is invest as aggressively as you can, because in the long term, that will give you the most growth, but subject to how much short-term market volatility can you stomach and still be comfortable. And so the risk tolerance questionnaire is trying to calibrate how much do we have to sacrifice in terms of our stock allocation to allow us to be comfortable. And that really doesn't speak to the retirement problem very well. I have these, this idea of there's four L's for retirement, which I, the financial goals, but they become concerns. What are you worried about for retirement? Are you worried about outliving your money? Are you worried about the fear of missing out, of not enjoying the maximum possible lifestyle? Are you worried about leaving a legacy? Are you worried about having liquidity to cover unexpected spending shocks? And what we found is a risk tolerance questionnaire only speaks to one of those four concerns. It only speaks to just kind of the lifestyle, the fear of not having the maximum possible lifestyle. And so it, it doesn't address the risks retirees are concerned about. And therefore it's it's always gonna be important because you always have an investment portfolio as part of the retirement strategy, but it's kind of one of the last things that you look at in building a retirement plan. It's not the starting point. And we do think that the retirement income style awareness is the better starting point that better addresses the concerns people have for retirement. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that the uh, risk tolerance and kind of the variability of the investments is one of the last things you look at. Uh, we've got our uh, five-step retirement plan, and we very pointedly say investments is not the first thing. We've got to mm -hmm. go through several other steps to even determine, uh, should you even have any investments? And how much risk should you take in your investments? There's so many other things to look at that first. Uh, mm -hmm. So what is the retirement spending smile, and how can it help our retirement planning? Mm -hmm. So the retirement spending smile that's based on some research from David Blanchett that just shows the, it's the idea that, well, to put it in context, the 4% rule assumes you're always going to increase your spending for inflation every year throughout retirement. And David Blanchett noted that with uh, looking at actual spending patterns for real retirees, spending doesn't tend to keep up with inflation. It tends to decline over time. But then late in life, there can be the uh, long-term care events, big health care bills, and so forth. And so in, in real-term spending declines from the 60s into the 80s, and then it may start to pick up again uh, late in life. And so that creates a, a smile shape for the spending pattern. And then the big point of that, though, is 
the assets you need to fund that sort of spending pattern are notably less than the assets you would need to fund a constant inflation adjusted spending pattern. And I even simulated based off of David Blanchett's pattern that he developed, uh, you could retire with 17% less assets if you knew that you were going to have the spending smile shaped lifetime spending need versus assuming you'd always have to adjust your spending for inflation. Yeah, I think what it does too, which is great, is it recognizes that you you generally spend more at the beginning of your retirement, probably even more than you expect. And uh, also too, just even thinking of uh, maximizing happiness. Like if you uh, intentionally spent a little bit more the first few years of life, understanding that you're likely to spend uh, less uh, later on, uh, mm -hmm. it's probably going to add not just to your probability of financial success, but probably your retirement happiness success just by planning for what naturally happens. And when you follow a, a rule like the 4% rule or, or any kind of guideline that just assumes a uh, an exactly the same uh, spending amount, uh, that's not really matching up with reality or matching up with what gives you the most happiness in retirement. Right, right. Like I'm, I framed it as you could retire with less assets, but another way you could frame that is with a given asset base, you could have a much more enjoyable early retirement period because you wouldn't have to be as worried about keeping up with inflation over the long term. Good. Now, how does adding a five-year buffer or let's call it an income bucket improve the retirement probability of success? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's four broad ways to manage sequence of returns risk. And buffer assets is one of the uh, four broad methods. And, and the idea is if you have something outside your portfolio that's not correlated and that you can spend from temporarily, that helps manage sequence risk because it helps you to avoid selling from your portfolio when it looks to be in trouble. So uh, an easy way to increase the withdrawal rate that you can use throughout retirement, of course, you're introducing a new asset outside of the portfolio, but is by having that buffer asset to help manage that sequence of returns risk. And I know on the dashboard, I've got some numbers around, you can see a notable increase in the sustainable withdrawal rate if you have a five-year buffer asset also as part of the mix. Yeah, you get it. Now, I'm excited to hear you answer these uh, next two questions. Final two questions we have. Uh, when is the best time to file for Social Security? <laughs> for the high earner in the couple, and, and for a couple where both individuals are in reasonable health, uh, it's generally going to be 70. Now, for the uh, low earner in a couple, there is more flexibility. But for the high earner, it's really worth thinking about delaying as much as possible. You, you can retire before then, but uh, spend other assets and delay social security to 70. Perfect. Now, what is the best way to plan for your retirement income? Uh, there is no best way. There's <laughs> four broad retirement styles. And the best way to plan is to identify which style actually resonates best with your personality and comfort and then plan according to that style. Yeah. And I'd say uh, the best way that matches with your way of approaching retirement or wanting to approach retirement, not necessarily what the financial advisor thinks is best. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> okay. awesome. And increasingly financial advisors who are going to be comfortable with any of these different styles are going to be best positioned to help the most people. And those who maintain there's only one way to do things are ultimately... Um, the public doesn't realize that there's multiple retirement styles and yeah. so as there just becomes more and more of an understanding of that, the the people who just advocate for one approach as being optimal for everyone are going to lose out in the long term. Yeah, well, you're certainly uh, carrying the banner for kind of the uh, 
multitude of different ways you can approach retirement and matching up that best way for you to actually how your investments and income set up. So I appreciate you, you doing that. I've got one question, more and more question for you, Wade, but before uh, we get there, tell us what's the best way for people to reach out to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so retirementresearcher.com would be my main home on the internet. And my retirement planning guidebook is available through Amazon or any other major book retailer. And I do also have a podcast now as well, the Retire with Style podcast with Alex Margia. So any of those means work very well. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll put links to all that in there, especially the Retire with Style uh, podcast. And what we like to do is read, learn. We love education on our podcast. And so the first three people that email me, podcast at kylefp.com, we'll send you out a, a free copy of that retirement planning guidebook. So just email me at podcast at kylefp.com. We'll get you a copy of Wade's book. All right, Wade. Well, final question. Tell us something about yourself that few people know about. And remember that this podcast is rated clean. <laughs> well, I, so if the people listening to that show don't know much about me, they probably don't know. I did live in Japan for 10 years. It was my first job out of grad school. I worked at, as an economics professor in Tokyo for the from tw- 2003 to 2013. So have that really great international experience as part of my background. Oh, that's great. I did not know that about you. Uh, <laughs> I lived in Germany uh, growing up. Uh, my dad was oh, in the military. So I lived in Germany for roughly 10 years uh, myself too. But uh, oh, that's great. Good. Well, thank you, Wade, for coming on, sharing your wealth and knowledge. Uh, this has been great. We always talk about retirementresearcher.com. And so uh, finally, uh, we're able to expose uh, even more of your great research to, to everyone listening. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you got it. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe that if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. This was another great episode of the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to automatically get our latest episodes. If you liked our show and want even more, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please go to retirement-revealed.com to learn more and send us your questions and feedback. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners, Thrivent, or its affiliates. The guests are not affiliated with or endorsed by Thrivent Advisor Network. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal accounting or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have with your investment planning.